0: So we have to think about ownership as a, you know, within a a volatility matrix that we can be big believers in in a company and the opportunity set, but we have to recognize these swings, you know, to the upside and and to the downside can be significant.
1: You're listening to Traders Insight Radio by Interactive Brokers. Find more podcasts and daily market commentary at tradersinsight.news. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now welcome to our show. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to IBKR Traders Insight Radio podcast. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers, and I'll be your host for today's program. We'll be talking with Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at CraneShares, about the impacts on and potential consequences to U.S. and global investors, as well as China and Chinese companies stemming from U.S. policy, namely the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, or HFCAA. A little bit about Brendan. Brendan leads CraneShares research and education efforts He actively works with investors on a wide range of subjects, from asset allocation to trading to providing insights into the growing influence that index providers hold in the asset management industry. He's also considered an expert in global financial markets with a particular focus on China. He's also the author of China Last Night, a daily commentary on China's financial markets. And we're very lucky to have him here with us. Welcome, Brendan. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, Stephen. Yeah, very much uh, appreciate the opportunity
1: to connect today. Yeah, it's great. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for taking the time. From what I understand, the HFCAA was signed into law in late 2020. And about a year later, the SEC adopted its final amendments for its implementation. And there's been some mounting attention in the financial markets recently about changes that apparently need to take place for compliance reasons because of it. Uh, More specifically, I understand this involves certain U.S.-listed Chinese company equities that are on the cusp of being delisted from domestic exchanges, and I suppose, depending on their eligibility, moved over onto the Hong Kong stock exchange. Uh, Some investors have now been converting their U.S.-listed ADRs, their Chinese ADRs, to local currency, the secondary listings in Hong Kong through their broker, and many have done this already here at IBKR. I know you've been very active in speaking out about this HFCAA issue. What can you tell us about it? Why did it come about and how does it stand to affect these holders, whether it's single named Chinese ADRs? I believe there's a little more than 250 of these listed on U.S. exchanges uh, or through ETFs and and other funds.
0: You know, the kind of history behind this uh, goes back to the WorldCom and Enron uh, crises in the early 2000s, where following you know those frauds in the U.S. market, you know the Sarbanes-Oxley was passed, and as part of Sarbanes-Oxley was the formation of the PCAOB, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which was tasked with auditing auditors. So the idea was that they were uh, kind of the teacher of auditors. They would grade their papers. They would literally, re- you know, they received the audit papers. And over time, this law uh, you know, the PCOB is in charge of was applied to foreign listings. And over the last 20 years, it's been a slow process of countries allowing these audit reviews to take place. And over the last decade, you know, the SEC and and its equivalent, the CSRC, signed an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, that they would allow this for U.S. listed Chinese companies. But it it really, really has dragged on. Where over uh, the last say two three years, Belgium and France and China have been the last to sign on and 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 today it's solely china does not allow these audit reviews that's that's really driven by a chinese law that prevents the auditors from providing the audit papers and following the Luckin coffee fraud the u.s the u.s politicians took it upon themselves to force the issue so holding foreign companies accountable act was passed first in the senate and then in the house and signed into law at the end of uh, December, 2020, which says that if these audit reviews aren't allowed, then companies that don't allow it would be delisted from US exchanges. And so you have over the last year, the SEC you know, kind of clarifying how they're going to enforce this rule. And the the whole situation is, is highly problematic. You know, the companies were allowed to list here. I mean, US regulators allowed these companies and fully aware they could not adhere to Sarbanes Oxalate. And, and in some ways the goalposts have been moved on the companies and their shareholders because yeah, they're stuck between U.S. law now and Chinese law, and and so the companies are in a really tough situation, and more importantly, their shareholders are in a very tough situation uh, because they're stuck between you know the proverbial rock and the hard place on this issue.
1: It's really fascinating, and I wonder what it is hindering China, or or what China's decision is not to comply, say, yeah. with the PCAOB. Or what is driving that decision? I think one, one would be
0: that across the USADRs, you do have a small number of state-owned enterprises. So companies that have a higher level of government ownership from, from China, and within those state-owned enterprises, it's feasible that within these audit papers, you'd see the subsidies given to the companies. Now, the state-owned enterprises make up a very, very small percentage of the overall companies listed here, of the numerically as well as from a market cap. The vast, vast majority of these companies are private companies. They have nothing to do with the Chinese government. So, you know, on some of the earnings calls of the companies, the companies in speaking to this have said, you know, we, we have nothing to hide. Uh, we would we would love to comply yep. Yep. to this, but we can't. You know, we're in China. We have to adhere the Chinese law, but now there's this U.S. law. The second factor is that this issue has been political sized. The regulatory bodies in the U.S. and in China really are out of the equation in solving this issue that, you know, U.S. politicians said, you're going to do this. And, you know, I've I've got younger kids. And as a parent, I can say, uh, no one likes to be told what to do, uh, but certainly not a sovereign nation from another country telling them. That is culturally something that is unpalatable, I think, from a Chinese cultural perspective. That's not how you operate in dealing with, with China and Politically or in business, you know, I can speak to the latter and it's it's ultimately, Stephen, you know, here's the real problem is that this was done to punish yep. China, but it, that's an ill founded view. Chinese investors do not hold the stock. U.S. and global investors do. And you're not hurting China if you delist them you would hurt the investors, US and globally, that own those stocks.
1: Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to see how some of those stocks have, have performed uh, a little bit later. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned luck and coffee and fraud and how this HFCAA may can, have come about mm-hmm. on the heels of that. But I, I recall the political tensions, when you talk about political tensions, you know, I recall the US government's efforts to crack down on Chinese policy related to technology transfer, intellectual property, innovation uh, that they found, say, unreasonable or discriminatory or that burdened or restricted U.S. commerce. Uh, I seem to remember this affected Chinese tech stocks like Huawei and later uh, U.S. employed a section under, I think, the National Defense Law, I I think it was Section 1237, sought to essentially blacklist Chinese companies that the U.S. deemed to have ties to Chinese military. Uh, This included uh, Xiaomi at the time. And I believe it was under that same section led to the delistings of Chinese telecom companies from the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Now, Is is HFCAA an extension of these uh, U.S. policies as well? It is totally different
0: that the, you know, there were executive orders in the waning days of the past and previous administration banning U.S. investors from investing in companies that, you know, were reported to have ties to the Chinese military. As part of that ban, that became an issue for US exchanges, where three Chinese telecom companies, China Mobile, China Telecom, China Unicom, had ADRs listed on the exchange. And because that executive order was really pushed through in a very disorderly manner in a very short time period. Those stocks were delisted by, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, which made investors who either didn't sell or convert their ADRs ended up with a zero. Now, HFCAA is different in that we have a little bit of a longer window. You know, we're talking about maybe a later 2024, maybe 2025 delisting. So there's time to prepare for this. But unfortunately for investors who in the case of China Mobile, Unicom and Telcom if they did not act, that was a zero. And unfortunately, you know, we've heard some, you know, really terrible stories about people whose parents were in the hospital or a gentleman who was transferring his brokerage account from one broker to another, those that those positions are gone. That makes HFCAA a little bit scary in that if you don't act. And this Follows through, it's gone. It's it's a zero.
1: Yeah, if by acting you mean converting these ADRs to Correct. local currency secondary listings on the Correct. Hong Kong. Now, are, are all of these ADRs eligible to be on the Hong Kong stock exchange? Well, we've seen we've
0: seen over the last um, you know two plus years. A uh, not you know many of these companies start this relisting. I, actually, it actually predi- uh, preceded HFCAA that uh, Alibaba uh, relisted in November of 2019. So this this was well in advance of HFCAA. And the reason Alibaba relisted in Hong Kong was because U.S. investors treated Alibaba's <laughs> stock as like a trade war proxy. And so Alibaba said, well, U.S. investors don't understand us, so we're just going to go relist in Hong Kong where investors understand we have nothing to do with a trade war. And at the time, Alibaba's stock literally went from 200 to 300 (laughs) that investors in Asia said, yeah, you've got nothing to do with it. So that started down a path of other companies relisting that you had. JD and NetEase relist in June of 2020 again, way in advance of HFCAA. You then had Yum China, but that relisting has really accelerated un- because of HFCAA, and it's something that we anticipate across uh, 2022 is for very, you know, virtually all of these companies to relist. And Stephen, it's worth noting that the companies in many cases have moved their treasury stock out of the U S ADR into the Hong Kong share class. So if you're the founder and CEO of like in many of the cases of these companies, they're moving their shares, which means they actually, you know, that they view this as, as a risk. And I think that's something that, you know, for us, for crane shares, we've started this migration process within our exchange trading yeah. funds most uh, most prominently Kweb our our China internet ETF where we've we've moved a third of our Alibaba, JD, Netties, and Billy Billy positions into the Hong Kong and we anticipate that that migration to to move further across this year as well as other names that have relisted in Hong Kong, uh, Baozun, uh, Weibo relisted recently,
1: Autohome, Trip.com. Yeah, yeah, they're moving. It, it, it sounds like they're really getting ahead of it. it it's, it's interesting you're bringing up risk. And I know with Chinese ADRs, so or really with any ADR, you have a foreign currency risk. It's an implied foreign currency risk. It's almost like an equity derivative in that sense, where the U.S dollar or the dollar value of the ADR is really going to fluctuate with the underlying currency. If you move these to local currency shares, I suppose that particular risk is taken out of the equation, which would be one less risk to consider, I suppose, among others that deal with ADRs. But there's also this idea that the Federal Reserve is now becoming a little bit more hawkish in terms of its policy of removing liquidity, of being less accommodative, of hiking rates uh, in a rising inflationary environment. But the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Central Bank, seems to be becoming more accommodative. It seems to be going in the opposite direction. I understand they're they're coming under more scrutiny by Beijing. We used to have the Fed put. Now I hear talk in the markets of a Beijing put. I find that very interesting. So with these diverging monetary policies with the Fed and the People's Bank of China, do you think that given that it adds back a layer of foreign currency risk for those holders of the local market shares in, in Hong Kong?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a great observation, Stephen. You know where the you know one one underappreciated element of Hong Kong is that the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the U.S. dollar. Now it's not a one-for-one one peg; uh, it's allowed to float within a range. But the Hong Kong Monetary Authority does defend the peg. So in general, you know, Hong Kong listed stocks similar to, say, Saudi Arabia, which has a similar peg, you know, in this stronger dollar environment, the almost irony is that the Hong Kong listed securities have a measure of margin of safety relative to other EM currencies that you know the currencies float and as the Fed moves to a higher interest rate, a tightening cycle, uh that yeah, can be yeah. problematic for EM currencies. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you've seen that, you know, this, you know, over the last year, we say Turkey. Now you bring up another good point, which is it's it's interesting that as the US is moving to a tightening China's the PBOC is actually doing the opposite that, you know, last July, the bank reserve requirement ratio. So the amount amount of money banks have to hold on their books was cut by by 50 basis points. And that frees up balance sheet to lend more. Uh, Then in December, we had the loan, the one year loan prime rate cut. Uh, that was followed more recently by the medium term loan facility kind of an intra pboc the bank lending facility that was cut and then even more recently in in january we had the one in five year loan prime rates cut so it's 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 interesting that you know china has kept its interest rates quite high over the last several years they've not they've actually haven't cut their interest rates in years and years and so they've got this dry powder that they're starting to put into work and i i think that's mainly driven by the real engine of gdp in china has been export driven manufacturing that you know global stimulus has led consumers globally to buy more iPhones and TVs and laptops and computers and Sony PlayStations and and cars. Now, for China as the world's factory, that puts tremendous demand on their exports. Now, as the U.S. and others move away from those stimulus policies, that export growth engine will inevitably slow. So so China's got to make up for it elsewhere in their economy. So they're easing. And I think the consumption trends in China have been quite, have been relatively weak over the last year because of their very draconian COVID measures. And they got to get those households away from that conservatives to start spending more.
1: It's really fascinating. And we've seen what the equity market in the US has done or how it's performed over the span of accommodative monetary policy uh, in the U.S., it would be interesting to see how that plays out uh, in China as uh, the PBOC may become even more accommodative than it has uh, more recently. Which brings me to this point, which I think is really interesting because Chinese company shares haven't responded Really well, at least since the HFCAA had been rolled out, and I know you talked about how Alibaba shares had increased uh, relisting in Hong Kong. But it seems you know the ADRs, at least in the past year, shares in, in Alibaba, JD.com, which you mentioned, Baidu, Tencent, they've lost in the area between forty to sixty percent of their value from their fifty-two week highs in that in that time mm-hmm. period. But I also understand that there are certain related funds whose assets have actually increased their assets under management. So it seems that there's more inflows into related funds, even as these companies' shares declined. And so how do you explain this?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, 2021 was really the perfect storm for US-listed China ADRs. And, you know, just using our K-Web, which, you know, from 2019, the low in 2019 through mid-February of 2021, you know, K-Web went up like 170%. And then, (laughs) From that, we lost fifty, you know, almost fifty percent over the calendar year 2021, and it was driven by, you know, first we had Archegos, uh, you know, this U.S. listed hedge fund that five of the ten securities it held were U.S. listed Chinese ADRs that were liquidated at at very very steep discounts. We then had the onset of Chinese internet regulation. Which has really weighed on the space, you know that it feels like they're walking down a list of companies almost like an, an ad hoc or whack-a-mole, but you know the reality is the the regulation is multifaceted, <laughs> yeah. and those different regulatory silos like user data, user protection, fintech, anti-monopoly, anti-competitive. Those different regulatory buckets are actually governed by different regulatory bodies in China that are have been moving at different speeds. And so as different regulatory agencies come out with regulation across last year, you know, we kind of view China as this singular entity, but that's that's not really the case. And then in the fall as the SEC, which is you know really simply just the enforcement agent for HFCAA you know, they have to enforce this law. They've started to articulate how they'll go about it, which which I think, you know, really exacerbated uh, tax loss selling in November and December in the securities that, you know, we've seen prominent, you know, if it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, if, if you're generating big gains, you're gonna look for losses to offset those gains. And so, That's investors saying, okay, A, I can maybe harvest a loss in an individual China ADR to offset gains elsewhere. But but I think it's also elements of investors who don't want to hold a Hong Kong share class. Not all US broker dealers allow an ADR conversion like Interactive does.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's really interesting. Can you tell me, what would you say to these holders in terms of strategy for hedging purposes? So they're holding the ADR, they're going to convert, you know, they want to make sure that they don't suffer any losses in the meantime. What would you suggest in terms of a hedging strategy or do they need one?
0: Well, I I think ultimately, you know, for any equity investor, you know, we we are taking risk and uh, you know, these securities are, you know, classified as emerging markets, which, tends to have a standard deviation, a minimum of twice that of the S&P 500. So, so we have to think about ownership as a, you know, within a, a volatility matrix that we can be big believers in, in a company and the opportunity yep. set, but we have to recognize these swings, you know, to the upside and, and to the downside can be significant you know i think as things migrate to hong kong i've noticed that the hong kong names are not nearly as volatile as the us names in my opinion i haven't proven this quantitatively but i do think that in asia the the western media narrative about china you know, it's it's not that investors aren't aware of the, you know, that negative narrative. They just don't buy into it, you know. And I think about Evergrande, you know, in the U.S. or Western media, it's, you know, it's China's Lehman moment. And in China, no one believes Evergrande's going to default. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just too big to fail. I, I mean, I, I don't think Evergrande exists in three to five years will be unwound, broken up. but. An outright default? Yeah. No, no. Like it's, it's, it's not just that there's 120 banks have lent money to Evergrande. It's Chinese households have paid for an apartment. Evergrande is building, and a default means they get left holding the bag. You know that's not going to happen. It's highly unlikely.
1: Yep, won't play out like a like the real estate crisis or the housing crisis here in the U.S. Uh, although that was uh, uh, really seems to have been a uh, phenomenon of mispricing credit, I think, in general. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we have uh, a huge company, a huge lender where the real estate market is very much tied to uh, that particular company and that particular company defaulting. The government, you're saying, won't allow this company to default, to default because it's too big to fail in their eyes.
0: Yeah, I mean you can I mean, you know, you can never say never, but you know, I would say in Chinese financial media there's little to no belief that Evergrande will have an outright default. There's just too many, you know, Chinese households because it's a national-sized company. You've got people all over China paid for an apartment. They want that apartment. And, and then think about all of the construction companies working on Evergrande's projects. You know, that electrician, that plumber, you know, the person running the cement mixer, they want to yeah, get paid. Yeah.
1: And all the raw materials and all the investors in those raw materials as well that goes into it, right? I mean, there's, there are a lot of parts to it.
0: It's a great, you know, Stephen, 100%, you have a downstream effect. And that's, that's not even, you know, who do they owe this $300 billion to? Yeah. You know, it's Chinese banks. Yep. So, you know, in general, you know, Evergrande will pay for its sin 100 uh, percent, but I don't see an outright default uh, taking place.
1: Well, this is this is great. And I'm sure that that's great news for the banks as well to hear that and to hear you say that. I'm going to wrap this up a bit here, Brendan, but I'd like to hear your insights on what you foresee for U.S.-China relations going forward as a result of the HFCAA and what we started this conversation with. Will these delistings do you think pose further risks for the markets in the u.s and financial markets globally does it splinter out from here yeah it's you know you know a you know i think it's 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 misguided that thinks this hurts
0: china that it, it hurts u.s investors uh secondarily this is capital controls and capital mm-hmm. controls for political purposes is is a very slippery slope it sets a very dangerous precedent and puts u.s capital markets at risk for global investors they would say look what look what happened to china that can happen elsewhere but i do think this issue is solvable that you know despite you know the rocky political relationship between the u.s and china this is not a hard one this is solvable and You know, hopefully that there are discussions taking place to solve this issue. You know, unfortunately, it's taken the U.S. a year to assign an ambassador to China. So you got to have dialogue and communication. I mean, get on an airplane. It's 2022. You know, you're not sending a telex or a fax. You know, this isn't like Carthage versus Athens (laughs) or Rome, you know, uh, Athens versus sparta
1: or you know rome versus carthage you know it's 2022 get on an airplane yeah and you're and and you're talking about political will and uh, that's really what it sounds like it comes down to in terms of of resolving this issue but this was truly fascinating brendan i mean thank you very very much for taking the time to do this you can learn more about this topic for our listeners in crane webinar presentation u.s to hong kong stock conversion it can be found on crane uh, you can also keep abreast of Crane Shares webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, as well as their market commentary at ibkrtradersinsight at tradersinsight.news. And I hope you'll be back with us again, Brendan. Yeah, I would
0: love to, Stephen. You know, thank you very much. You know, I think it's uh, for your listeners. You know, as a fiduciary, we're we're not going to stand idle on behalf of our shareholders and. At the same time, you know, we feel it's, it's a obligation to make you, you know investors aware of this risk. Um, and I commend Interactive Brokers for providing a venue to allow for this ADR conversion. You know, not, not all US broker dealers allow that. Uh, so a hat tip to um, Interactive Brokers.
1: Well, that's great. It's really great. Uh, thanks again, Brendan. I, I really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to Traders Insight Radio. As always, there's more content at tradersinsight.news. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. There's a substantial risk of loss in foreign exchange trading, Settlement date of foreign exchange trades can vary due to time zone differences and bank holidays. The interest rate on borrowed funds must be considered when computing the cost of trades across multiple markets. Interactive Brokers is not affiliated with and does not endorse or recommend any third party investment information, advice services, or products discussed in this episode. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBPR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, is necessary, seek professional advice.